Good evening. They asked me to stand here tonight, so I guess I'll do that. It puts me up. I prefer standing there, and it puts me further away, but uh, we'll do it the way they want us to do it. For years, we've had a ministry in the Franklin County Prison, and one evening, we uh, were returning from that Bible study. There was a man in a holding cell who wasn't permitted to come to the meetings, and he said to us, he said, there are many people come into this prison uh, for different activities. You folks seem different from the others who come here. Do you preach a different gospel? And I said, well, I'm not here when the others teach, so I can't really say what they say. But I will say this, my understanding is most gospel preaching is focused on people getting to heaven when they die. Our teaching is focused on getting heaven to earth while we live. And uh, that is a basic difference we talked about last night, that uh, the, the theme of the gospel that Jesus preached was the kingdom of heaven. And uh, <clears throat> you find that every time he mentions the content of what he was preaching, and I noticed, I brought to your attention that a kingdom is a society of people, it's not an individual. And uh, <clears throat> so we want to look tonight at how we get into this kingdom. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 5, we will start there. <clears throat> how do you enter this society? Well, most people would say it's by repentance and the new birth. And for years it perplexed me why this most complete statement about life in Christ's kingdom did not start with the new birth. I don't know if that ever made you wonder. Why is nothing said at the beginning here about the new birth as an entrance into the kingdom? And then one day as I was studying, it became clear to me that's exactly how it begins. You see, most people see the new birth as an event Jesus, I think, is teaching us that it's a process. It has a beginning. There is a surrender to Jesus. Uh, it has a definite uh, time of conscious decision to begin. And uh, there, there's a very important event takes place there. But Jesus saw the life as a process, this, this whole rebirth. In fact, the word salvation is, comes from the concept of salvage. It comes from that same word. It means it's a process of remaking us. And so you have this new birth process, I'm going to call it, described here in these passages. Now, the first word in each of these statements is blessed. Some translations uh, translated happy. I do not like that, and, and for this reason. What is discussed here is not a feeling. It's not a state of mind. It's actually a, uh, a reality bestowed, like God pouring his blessing on us. So it's not just how you're feeling, it's not just happiness, it's that it's an actual gift that's being bestowed. Manifestation, Manifestation however you want to say it. And so I, I, I'm going to stick with the word blessed, because it means there's a blessing being given to us with each one of these. And the term itself literally means that you're in the best possible situation you can be. In fact, you're in a situation to be envied. This is such a a, a tremendous experience of gift of blessing that you are in the very best possible place you can possibly be. So, <clears throat> how do you acquire this blessedness? Well, the first thing we have here is poor in spirit. You could say destitute in spirit. And that's how the, the new birth occurs. It occurs when we come to the place where we realize that we 
are totally destitute. A sense that without Christ we can do nothing. Now they say the Greek word for poor here, there, is two, there are two Greek words for poor. The one means a, a working man that just has nothing extra. He's poor. The other meaning is a man who has absolutely nothing, a man who is destitute, a man who is in abject poverty. Unless he has something given to him, he will have nothing. And that's the term that is given here. We sing it in our songbook, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. <clears throat> Finney Caravilla said this, it's the awareness that we are actually worse than people think we are. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about things about yourself that are negative that nobody else knows. And it's that sense that if everybody knew everything they, that should be known about me, they really wouldn't have a very great opinion of me. I am not a very good person. I'm in tremendous need, okay? And so this is an experience of self-renunciation, okay? And so to picture it, I'm going to use uh, Francis Schaeffer's uh, picture here. He says that in every heart there is a throne and a cross, okay? Before conversion, he says self is on the throne and Christ is on the cross. And the conversion experience changes that so that Christ is on the throne and self is on the cross. And uh, that's where this begins, when we finally put self on the cross. You notice last night I told you that sin is another, selfishness is another way of saying sin. Well, th this, is what, this is what needs to happen. But then there has to be a continual experience of cross-bearing. Jesus said we have to take up our cross every day. And there's been a lot of debate through the years as to exactly what that means. Well, this is how I look at it. Let's suppose this is the way of self, and this is the way of Christ. And so you're going along in your life, and all of a sudden you realize that the way you're taking is really not the way of Christ. And you have to make a change. You have to decide to turn. And the reason why we have to do that every day is because we're making decisions every day. And in many of those decisions, this has to occur. I mean, you're down on the car lot looking for a car. And uh, you have your own dreams about what kind of car you want to have, and all of a sudden it strikes you. I don't think this car that I'm dreaming about is really the car Jesus would buy. And so you have to make a change. And we make those changes in every decision, uh, aligning our will with the will of Christ. And it, it involves a cross. It involves something often very painful and very difficult. Uh, so that is where this all begins, and that's how it proceeds. It proceeds with a daily, moment-by-moment, moment, decision by decision, willingness to apply the cross and change our way so that it, it uh, corresponds with the way of Christ. We must sit down before the realities of life just like a scientist sits down before the facts. A scientist has to sit down. He has to get rid of all his preconceived ideas, to get rid of all his biases, and let the facts speak for themselves. The story is told, in fact, the true story of Louis Pasteur, who, of course, developed the germ theory of uh, disease. Well, before Louis Pasteur, uh, people's concept of disease was, were, was very superstitious. It happened with all kinds of superstitious uh, events, which had nothing to do, of course, with the disease. And Louis Pasteur one day looked through his microscopes, and he saw these little things, and and all of a sudden dawned on him, that's what's causing disease, these little things which we call germs. So he went to the doctors and he said, now look, the reason why one-third of the people are dying in your hospitals is because you're not washing your hands between, uh, uh, 
your examinations and you're carrying disease from one person to another because, and he explained to them what causes disease. They refused to listen to him because he was a chemist. He was not a doctor. And they said, we're doctors. We're trained to be doctors. You don't know anything about uh, medicine. And so they just refused to listen to him. And they continued not to wash their hands and people continued to die in their hospitals. Why? Because they refused to sit down and look at the facts. They had a prejudice. They had preconceived uh, ideas in their minds as to how this all was. So uh, this is where it begins. <laughs> Sit down before the facts of life that Jesus has to teach as a learner, ready to put aside every bias, every idea we have, all of our self-interests, all of our self-desires, and say, Jesus, speak to me, and I will make whatever changes you want to make in my life. <clears throat> And this says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think that means that this is how you enter. Uh, there are many people who come to Christ and don't make a complete surrender. And they don't experience a new birth. Because it requires this complete surrender because Christ has a major operation to do. Now, if you went to the hospital for a major operation and you said to the surgeon, I want you to give me a local anesthesia because you and I are going to discuss this operation, and if we agree, you'll cut, and when we don't agree, you won't cut. We will have to agree before you make any cuts. How many of you think a doc, any surgeon worth his salt would ever begin an operation on that basis? Of course, they wouldn't. You would die on the operating table. You know nothing about surgery, and he knows everything, at least it is known, about surgery. And the same thing is true with Jesus. He's going to have to make a lot of cuts that we will not particularly understand or maybe would not even want. But surgeons don't cut to hurt, even though it hurts when they cut. They cut to heal, and hurt is part of the healing. And so it always bothers me a little bit when I hear somebody, an evangelist say, uh, everybody raise your hand, stand up, or come forward who wants to make a greater surrender to Jesus. I think I know what they mean, and, and that's maybe okay if they mean something God just now revealed to you, uh, but the, the, the way a, a person who's just become a Christian and a person who's been a Christian for 70 years, the way they are alike is the surrender is total. The growth is understanding what that surrender means as you go along, and if that's what they mean by a greater surrender, that's okay, but that always bothers me a little bit because there is no such thing as Christianity with a partial surrender of knowing things that you will not surrender to Jesus. So that's how we enter. And then I want you to notice that each of these things grow out of the one before. This is a process. And each time you make progress in one of them, you pave the way for the next one. And the next one here is blessed are they that mourn. The first one was destitute in spirit. This is broken in heart. They say this is the strongest possible Greek word for sorrow. It's the sorrow that Jacob had and could not be comforted. This means that complacency, a carefree attitude, a casual attitude, which by the way is taking over so many of our congregations, is gone. That whole mentality of just drifting along in carefree life, there's no more carefree life. This person is very, very involved in dealing with the reality of his life. Uh, <clears throat> When you totally surrender to Christ, all of a sudden you have new eyes. You see for God for who he is. You, you see yourself for who you are. You see the world for what it is. And it's not a pretty picture. You see a lot of changes that need to be making. All right? <clears throat> it's to see the truth and the reality. Uh, 
which brings about a tremendous humility. I want, uh, uh, did you ever notice in Romans chapter 12 when it talks about having a renewed mind? Did you ever notice what it says next? It says that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. That's the first evidence of the renewed mind. And so uh, it's a sorrow that leads us to a, a repentance, a continual changing of our way, and a continual way of, we, of relating to the world around us. The story is told of someone who visited a, uh, a retirement home or, a, a limited, or an assisted living home, and uh, there they met three very old-looking men. They asked the first man what was uh, the secret of his long life, because he looks old. And he said, well, I never smoked, I never drank or caroused. I've ha been happily married to the same woman for 60 years. How old are you? 96. The second man looked even older. They asked him what, what was the secret to the old age that he had acquired. And he said, well, I smoked a little, I drank a little. I caroused a little. My first wife divorced me. I married another woman, and we've been living together for 40 years. And how old are you? 66. The third man looked the worst and the oldest. And they asked him what was the secret of his old age. He said, well, I smoked three packs a day. I drank two-fifths of whiskey every day. I caroused to the early hours of the morning, six days a week, and I've never been married. And how old are you? 25. The way that does not see reality ends in self-delusion. The story is told of Sam Hadley, who was the director of the Bowery Mission in New York. He had been a drunk on the street and had gotten gloriously converted and became a, uh, a, a director of that mission. One day, Charles Alexander, who was the singer for Billy Sunday, came there for the evening service to sing. And after the service, he said to Sam Hadley, would you show me the Bowery? And Sam said, sure, I will. So he showed him the flop houses, the house of prostitution, the uh, liquor places, and all the stuff, people drunk, lying on the streets. He took him all around, showed him all the sad picture of the Bowery. And then they came back to the mission, and he walked around the corner to catch his bus, but he heard somebody crying. So he walked back around the corner, and there was Sam Hadley leaning with his head against the lamppost, just crying his heart out and saying, oh God, the sin of this city breaks my heart. He had allowed himself to see reality and be affected by it, okay? Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of countenance, the heart is made better. That's what uh, Ecclesiastes 7.3 says. There's this little poem you may have heard. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but she left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Jesus was a man of sorrows. We have no record that he ever laughed. I'm not saying laughter is wrong, but we, we, he says, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So he was not a morbid person, but he was a man of sorrows. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. The promise here, there's a promise with every one of these. They shall be comforted. Well, how? They're going to see changes in themselves. They're going to see changes in people around them. They're going to see good things happening because they're taking a realistic approach. They're leading people to this way of life, and they're seeing the work of God in their lives. Mourning leads to humility and meekness, which is coming next here. So what is meekness? Well, meekness results from our candid, honest look at ourselves, and we realize that we have 
not been very nice people. We've been hurtful to people, and we take it very seriously that we not be hurtful people. And that's what meekness means. It means a person who is strong, but is under discipline. It's the word that means an animal that has been domesticated. It is anger on a leash. It's a trust in God that says, vengeance is mine, I will repay me, saith the Lord. It's a person who knows he does not need to manipulate or control people, that he can trust that to God, and in the meantime, he can be forgiving, and he can be kind, and he can be forbearing, and he can be understanding. He can have all those graces because he trusts God to take care of the reality that he's taking care of. <clears throat> trust in the Lord and do good, the psalmist says. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. This person is gentle. This person is safe. This person isn't going to hurt anybody. Now, he may have some things to say that are hurtful, but he will say them in a way that does, he will not do them and say them in a hurtful way. That's something I had to learn. I mean, I think people who know me know that I can have a sharp tongue. But there's no excuse for any Christian to ever hurt anybody by the way they say things and the way they do things. They may have to hurt, but they may have to say things that people don't want to hear. They may have to say things that hurt people, but let those things be said in a kind, gentle way with every effort made not to be hurtful in the way the things are said. Okay? <clears throat> the promise is they shall inherit the earth. <laughs> the meek shall inherit the earth. Now, you would think these are people that will be taken advantage of. Well, the early Christians won the heart of the Roman Empire within 200 years without lifting a sword. They did it by serving. They did it by dying. When the plagues hit the city, the Christians came and took care of people when all the, everybody else ran away. They risked their lives. And uh, Julian the Apostate, who tried to restore paganism uh, after Christianity had taken over the Roman Empire, finally threw up his hands in despair. He said, these people outserve our people. Our people need to learn from them how to, how to treat other people, how to serve, how to sacrifice themselves. That's the meek person. And the results, they won the heart of the Roman Empire. And finally, the Roman Empire had to give recognition to Christianity. Same thing with the Anabaptists. Your Anabaptist forefathers were the pioneers of religious freedom. They were the only people in the 1500s. They were the first people in modern history to call for separation of church and state. You see, the Protestants were all church and state people. They were still using the state to persecute and to coerce other people. Our people said, no, that's wrong. There should be separation of church and state. There should be voluntary church membership. There should be adult baptism. There should be freedom of conscience. And for that, they were burned at the stake. And they were drowned and tortured and beheaded and all those horrible things. But through that, the Quaker writer uh, Jones, I forget his first name, says that they were the ones that planted the seed that gave those freedoms to all of Western civilization. How was it done? It was done by meekness. It was done by suffering and letting God take care of it. You all know the story, Pastor Peter. Uh, I think this is in Coals of Fire. Uh, the men, this was later in the 1600s, before, after they were done killing our people, they still had a lot of persecution. And Pastor Peter, one night, awoke to know that there were an enemies of his on the roof taking off his thatch. And he said to his wife, he said, we need to get up. These people are up there working. They're, they're working hard. We, we need to have a, a good meal for them. So they got up and prepared breakfast, and they invited everybody in. And, of course, the men didn't want to come in. 
but they insisted, and they came in and sat and rather solemnly and wordlessly ate their breakfast, and then went out and put the thatch back on the roof. Somebody has said, beware of the terrible meek. <laughs> beware of the terrible meek. <laughs> Let's say it this way. That doesn't always happen, but if that doesn't change people, nothing else will. You can, you can by force do things, but you cannot change hearts if you can't change them that way, nothing else. This is the greatest power that you have to offer. So the meek are gentle in their strength. They're strong people. They, they won't compromise. They, they will lay down their lives. They will do all kinds of courageous things, but they are gentle. All right? Well, <clears throat> after you have totally surrendered to Christ, you've seen reality. You've begun to live out these teachings with meekness. You begin to see the beauty of righteousness. And so that's, we come into the next one. It's blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Okay? Now they say there are two Greek terms for hunger here. The one is a desire for a piece of bread. The, the next one is a desire for the entire loaf. You want the whole thing. They say this is the word that's used here. Blessed are the people who want the whole thing. Righteousness is righteous living. That's what it is, okay? A friend of mine said he had a, he had a friend who visited uh, Israel, and he was driving a little French car, Peugeot, and uh, it broke down, and they took it to a uh, Hebrew a garage with a little Hebrew mechanic, and he worked on it, and after he got done working on it, he said, now start it up. And so he started up the car, and it purred like a kitten, ran just the way it was supposed to. And the Hebrew word for what the Hebrew mechanic saw, heard, was the Hebrew word for righteous. <laughs> In other words, it was functioning perfectly the way it was supposed to. That's what righteousness is. When you always say the right word, you always do the right thing, you always live in perfect reality with everything that you meet, that's righteousness. And of course, we don't always attain that, but that's the passion, the passion. In fact, I don't know if you're aware of it, but the goal of Christianity is perfection. Did you know that? Jesus said, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And Paul says he labors to present every man perfect in Christ. And Jesus said the disciples not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. And Peter says, be holy, for I am holy. Paul says, I haven't attained it, but I'm pressing toward the mark. And that's what God wants. He knows we won't perfectly attain it, but he loves people pressing toward the mark. It's a little bit like David I talked to you about last night. He said, I know you're not going to build the temple, but it pleases me it was in your heart. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for the passion of our hearts to be perfect. And we pursue that with a passion, with a vengeance. We want to be holy. Okay? We want to be perfect. A discontent with all that is unlike God. We want so badly to be like our father. <clears throat> We're a little bit like Mozart, his father, Leopold. Mozart had a, a trick he liked to play on his dad. He would come home late at night when his father was in bed, and he'd sit down at the piano, and he would play a piece with ascending uh, music, and then he would play the last, next to the last note, and then he'd go to bed. And poor old Leopold would toss and turn and toss and turn in his bed. I mean, he just, 
and he couldn't sleep until he went downstairs and played the last chord. <laughs> well, that's what this means. We cannot stand to end the song on T. We want to have a life that is perfect. And the pursuit, even though we don't completely attain it, it says we shall be filled. The pursuit will, will give us complete satisfaction. Now, the Greek word for filled here is gorged. Gorged means more than enough. It says the person has a passion for righteousness shall be gorged. Well, why? Because that's what we were made for. We weren't made for sin. We weren't made for envy. We weren't made for selfishness. We weren't made for any of those things, immorality. We were made to be righteous. And when we are passionately pursuing righteousness, we are satisfying what we were made for, even physically. The Bible says envy is a rottenness to the bones. So the Bible recognizes that sin has psychosomatic consequences. It, it's hard on the body, our physical body. It's a little bit like if you said, uh, I'm doing a science experiment, and I need a handful of stone dust. I'm not going to go to the... Uh, uh, store to get it. I just need a little handful. So what I'll do is I'll go out here in the driveway and I'll get some stones and I'll come in and turn on the blender and I'll put the stones in the blender and I'll make me some stone dust. Is that going to happen? No. Not only are you not going to make any stone dust, you aren't going to have any blender. It wasn't made for that. It was not made to do stones. Or maybe you're a farmer and you buy a new hay baler and you say, well, the first project here is going to be to bale that scrap iron pile there. I mean, that's it really, <laughs> laugh now, but laugh the next time you're tempted to sin. That's how stupid sin is. Jesus did not so much call people wicked as he called them foolish. It's stupidity. And so when we pursue righteousness, we are... We are ingesting exactly what the body, even the physical body, was made to ingest. In fact, Dr. Hess, who was our family doctor, he was a German Baptist, uh, and most of his clientele was plain people. And he said to Clarence Fretz, and some of you knew who he was, and Clarence told me this, that Dr. Hess said to him one day, 80% of the people who come into my office are not sick because of the pathogen that made them sick. They're sick because they're living under such stress and doing things that, in a way that it lowers their immune system and then the pathogens take over. 80% of our people. A passion for righteousness. Uh, <clears throat> if we are living other than what we were made to live, we can expect dissatisfaction, frustration, conflict, disintegration, and finally death. It is against life. And so this is a wonderful promise. Blessed are they who have a passion to be right, have a passion for perfection, who pursue that with a passion. They will be gorged. They will be satisfied. This passion for righteousness leads to the next thing, which is a propensity for pity. Blessed are the merciful. The Greek here means to be able to get inside somebody else's skin and feel the way they feel. Okay? Many righteous people are not merciful. It's not my natural gift. Any mercy that I have ever developed is something I had to consciously allow God to do in my life. Righteousness untempered by mercy is hard, sour-faced, ugly, and mean. 
The story is told of a committee that went to the train station. It was a Protestant group of people to meet a new minister, and they'd never met him, so they were looking for someone that looked like a minister. And they, looked, they saw somebody that looked uh, pretty dour and unhappy, and so they went up to him and they said, I guess you're our new minister. No, he said, it's my stomach that makes me look this way. Jesus had bowels of compassion. You know, as a boy, I thought that was a pretty earthy word to put in the Bible. But that's exactly what it is. Did you ever get involved in something you were so concerned about it that your whole digestive system reacted? You were affected physically? That means that's what this is. To care so much about other people that you're physically affected. Jesus had bowels of compassion. We're told that God is rich in mercy. Micah 7, 18 says he loves mercy. We delight in making life as easy as possible. Now, I'm not thinking easy in the way of compromise. I'm talking about making life as easy as possible for other people. We're quick to forgive. We're slow to criticize. We're generous with our resources. We never condemn. I'll be talking about that later in the week. God did not send his son to condemn the world. He was a person who loved mercy, okay? John the Baptist and James and John had to learn that. They wanted to bring judgment on people. And Jesus said, I didn't come to do that. I came to bring life. He was a merciful person. Righteousness and mercy are merciful or beautiful when they walk together. Righteousness by itself is hard. Mercy by itself is mushy and undisciplined. But when those two can be put together, they make a beautiful combination. How many of you have ever read Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice? Only one person. <laughs> well, then I have to tell you the story. The Merchant of Venice was a man by the name of Antonio. And uh, he one day equipped all his ships and sent them to sea, and he was cash poor just at the time when his friend came and said he was going to get married, and Antonio wanted to give him an expensive wedding gift, but he had no money. So he went to Shylock, who was a Jew uh, and was a rich man, and asked him if he would loan him money. And he said, sure, I'll loan you money. And they agreed that this money would be paid back at a certain date. And then, sort of as a joke, with a chuckle, Shylock said, of course, if you don't pay this back on time, uh, I'm expecting you to give me a pound of flesh. And Antonio thought he was joking. What he did not know was Shylock hated him. When the time came to pay the money back, Antonio got word that his ships had all perished at sea and all his wealth was gone. So he goes to Shylock to beg for mercy, and Shylock said, no, I really do intend to have this happen. So they ended up in court, and the judge was pleading for mercy. Everybody in the court was pleading for mercy, and Shylock was just hard-hearted. He said, I will have my pound of flesh. The judge said, well, that's what the contract says. So Antonio, prepare yourself for this. So he started to bare his chest, because that's where he wanted to cut it. And Shylock was there sharpening his knife when in walked some lawyers. And the lead lawyer said, could I see the contract? So he looked at the contract. He said, it uh, says that uh, Antonio owes Shylock a pound of flesh. It doesn't say anything about any blood. So if you shed any blood in getting this pound of flesh, you forfeit your own life. Furthermore, it says a pound of flesh. So if you cut any more than a pound, you will forfeit your life. And furthermore, it does not say you have the right to have his life. So if he dies, you die. And then, Anto then Shylock is pleading for mercy. 
And then the lawyer gives this wonderful quality of mercy speech. I love this speech. The quality of mercy is not strained. It drops as a gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that receives. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throne monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute of awe and majesty wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings, but mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute of God himself. And here's the quotable line. And earthly power doth thus show likest God when mercy seasons justice. What's the promise here? They shall receive mercy. The story is told of Sundar Singh. He was a famous Indian teacher, Christian teacher. He and a friend were going across the mountain to witness on the other side of a Himalayan range uh, to another uh, village of people. And they had miscalculated uh, the weather and they did not, weren't dressed warmly enough and a storm came up and both of them were in danger of being frozen. But just about the time they were in danger of their own lives, they saw a man lying there in the snow. And uh, Sundar Singh got his ear down and he said, this man is still alive. We must pick him up and carry him, take him with us. And his friend said, well, we can't do that. If we do that, we'll all perish. So he goes on by himself. And Sundar Singh picks the man up and labors and trudges up the mountain and, of course, became very warm. The man became warm, and pretty soon he was breathing, and pretty soon he was walking beside Sundar Singh, alive. And then they came upon another man in the snow, and he wasn't breathing. It was the person who walked ahead. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And now we can understand God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Preparedness for purity. What is pure? It means unmixed motives. It means wheat with no chaff. It means milk with no water. And that's difficult. Because this is constantly intruding. John Bunyan one time was told by a parishioner after he finished finished preaching, you preached a wonderful sermon. And Bunyan said, I wish you had not said that. The devil already told me that as I was coming down the steps. Or the resigning pastor who had resigned, was resigning from a small church and going on to another church. He preached his last sermon. He was standing at the back and people were coming, shaking hands and bidding him farewell. And the last two people who came were two women who were weeping uncontrollably. Self takes some interesting forms. So he said to them very self-righteously, you shouldn't feel so sad. I'm sure the next pastor will be better. And they said, well, that's just the problem. They always say that when we get another pastor, but they keep getting worse and worse. Well, that surely blew his self-righteous bubble. But you see, we say those kinds of things because then we expect them to say something nice, but they were honest, okay? A pure person who is pure in heart has a single desire to see God. He doesn't need any credit. He doesn't need any praise. He can see God because he's gotten all of self out of his heart. You know, it reminds me of my dad. My dad was very strict. I grew up in a very strict home. 
And my friends actually pitied me because my dad did not let me do a lot of things that they did. And I would have sort of had the idea that my dad was, maybe didn't love me very much. I'll give you an example. When I was 17, my dad bought me my first car. Now, I grew up in a church where everybody had radios, but my dad hated the radio with a passion. He had grown up in a home with the radio, and he felt that it was a tremendous detriment to the family, and he did not want any radios in his home. So I ended up being the only boy in the church that had a car without a radio. And so when we had carpooling for cottage meetings or any, nobody would ride with me. I had no music in my car. A couple months later was my birthday. When I came in from the barn to wash up, I came to the table, there was a large package on my chair, there was a small package on my plate. The large package was a little Sony reel-to-reel tape recorder. Now, some of you younger ones never saw such a thing. They didn't have cassette players back then. Nobody had music in their car if they didn't have a radio, except my dad had done some research and had found he could buy this little Sony recorder. It had the speaker in the back, so you could put it right on the hump. The bench seats in the cars had a hump in front. Put it back tight and it would not rock. And you, the, the small package was a converter to plug in the cigarette lighter and take 12-volt uh, electricity, change it to 120 volts, alternating current. And then I had a recorder in my car, and I went around getting the best music I could find, and then everybody wanted to ride with me. Now, that little recorder in 1964 cost my dad $100, and the converter cost him $50. That's $150. You can multiply that by 15, probably, for today's money. And my dad was not rich. And I learned, when I finally was able to submit to my dad on the radio issue, I learned my dad had a heart of gold. And if he took anything from me, it was only because he wanted to give me something better. That completely changed my attitude. Now, if I had fought my dad, I'd have never learned that. And so it says, blessed are the pure in heart. They shall really learn to know God. They will learn to know he's a good God. They won't be uh, struggling with his commands and, oh, this is too difficult, and why does God want me to do this, and I wish I could, none of that. They will come to know that God is a good God, all right? We must hurry on. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, this doesn't say blessed are the peace lovers. A peace lover is a person who compromises for the sake of peace. No, no, no. This is a peacemaker. He's a person who deals with situations to bring true reconciliation. All right? John Woolman was a, a Quaker, and he was upset that there were some Quakers that had slaves. Did he get up and rail on them? No. What he did was he did what he thought he could best do to make peace. He realized that the dyes he sold in his dry goods store were the result of plants grown by slave labor in the South, so he refused to sell any dyes in his dry goods store or any dyed cloth, and he himself wore a white, undyed suit. Now, for Quakers who dressed in black and gray and brown, this was a scandal for this man to stand up with a white suit and preach against slavery. But by the time... He was a peacemaker, not a peace lover, a peacemaker. He wanted to deal with the issue, and when John Woolman died, there was, no, there, were no, there was no slavery in the Quaker church. These people are the sons of God because God says, 
He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's the great reconciler. He came to this earth for the purpose of reconciliation. Peacemaking is costly. Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. And people who make peace have to get used to seeing their own blood. They have to be willing to make sacrifices to bring peace and reconciliation and resolve issues. And then blessed are the persecuted, the people who endure persecution. The world is not a friend to grace. There will be a clash between the two kingdoms. The story is told of a secretary who the boss came to her one day and said, I want you to dictate a letter to send. And he started to dictate the letter. She said, I'm sorry, I can't send the letter. Why not? Because it's not honest. You're not telling the truth. You're fired. Take your belongings and leave immediately. So she started to clean out her desk. And then he turned around and came back. And he said, no, wait a minute. Before you go further, does that mean you would never cheat on this company? She said, yes. Put your things back in the desk. We need people like you. Now, it doesn't always end that way. But persecuted, all right? Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Wesleys saved England from a bloody revolution by enduring a lot of persecution. And what is the promise? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They belong to a great procession of martyrs, of persecuted people down through the centuries. This is a, a wonderful group of people. And finally, blessed are they who rejoice. It says, rejoice and be exceeding glad. They radiate a special joy. There's a difference between joy and happiness. Did you know that? I need to do this quickly. Happiness is based on this word. It's an old English word we don't use. It says, Ruth had the hap to glean in the field of Boaz. It means chance. Happiness is based on circumstances. And the problem with circumstances is they go up and they go down, and we don't have control over most of them. And if that's what you have, your feelings will go up and down. But joy is something different. Joy is a sense of well-being. It's a sense that all is well, that you're in the center of reality, even if you're being burned at the stake. I used to say that joy has not, not very much to do with circumstances. I'm prepared to say it has nothing to do with circumstances. If a man can sing while he's being burned at the stake, then surely joy has nothing to do with circumstances. All right. And it says it ends in rejoicing and glory. So here we are. Here are these wonderful characteristics. Each one gives way to the other. And uh, it ends with this wonderful blessing at the end. The story is told in closing. The story is told of an old missionary couple who went to the mission field and were there for years. They were there so long that everybody forgot about them. And finally, when they were in their late 80s, they decided to come home. This is a true story. They came home on the same ship as Teddy Roosevelt. He had just been to Africa for a safari. And here he comes home with all his trophies, and he gets off the ship, and the crowd takes him down the streets of San Francisco to a ticker tape parade, and the old couple standing on the ship, and there is nobody there to welcome them. And for just a moment, the old missionary brother gave way to a little bit of bitterness. He said, wife, this is not fair. We serve in Africa for 60 years. And this is what we get. He goes on a safari for two weeks, and this is what he gets. And she said, honey, you're not thinking right. 
we are not home yet. So let's pursue these. Let's be poor in spirit. Let's give up self, and let's keep giving up self. Let's allow ourselves to see reality and mourn about our own situation and the world. Let's do that. Let's be meek. Let's learn to be gentle with our strength. Let's learn to hunger to be perfect, even if we never quite attain it. Let's be like Paul. Let's keep pressing toward that mark. Let's be merciful. Let's want to be as kind as we possibly can be, even if we have to say things sometimes people don't want to hear. Let's be pure in heart. Let's get all self out there, out of it, so we can truly see God for who he is. Let's be peacemakers, not peace lovers, but peacemakers, willing to give our own, own blood and sacrifice to bring reconciliation and resolve difficult issues. And finally, let's just be willing to endure persecution, and let's experience the rejoicing as a result. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you this evening for these wonderful characteristics. Lord, I think we all know in our hearts that anyone who can live these to any degree is going to have a tremendous amount of influence, is going to be salt and light wherever they are, a silent force for good. And I just pray, Lord, help us to keep coming back to these wonderful characteristics and striving to attain them by, by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.